Hello and welcome back to Spy Hard's podcast. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam, the provocateur. And we're here with another Spy Master interview. We hope you enjoyed Thunderball a couple of days ago, but we thought we're going to go back to our first ever episode, our first ever Bond film, Goldeneye. And we found a hell of a guest to talk to. We or you? Because I have to give you all the props for this one. What a great find. Oh, I take credit for every single one of our guests so far. But um, I just kind of wanted to let you have a little bit of the glory there, Cam. But if anyone's counting, I think this is like interview number 11. And it's 11 nil currently. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, there's a reason I haven't earned my agent status. This is why. (laughs) You keep provoking them. Mm, Indeed. That is my thing. It's right there in my namesake. Absolutely. But let's get to it. Joining us today is the writer of GoldenEye, Jeffrey Kane. Now, Cam, I know the history of the story of GoldenEye in terms of the writers is a bit muddled. So can you explain Jeff Kane's part in that process? Right. So the film has a story credit by Michael France. So he was the one that came up with the original concept of what GoldenEye would be. But Jeffrey Kane was brought in to flesh the film out. He's the one that wrote the first full screenplay that was used. And um, he was also... Uh, at a certain point replaced by Bruce Firestein, who came in and did a revised version of the script. He talks more about that in the interview, but that was basically the breakdown, because if you look at the writing credits for GoldenEye, there's three credited writers. I thought it best to sort of clear it up there so you know exactly what he contributed, but I, I think overall he is the main contributor to the film. He definitely feels like, yeah, the main architect of the film, and that he had the idea that was he was given to flesh out And his screenplay is basically the building blocks of what the movie is from that point forward. Yeah. And aside from GoldenEye, Jeff Kane is also nominated for an Oscar for The Constant Gardener that he wrote. He also wrote Exodus, Gods of Kings, and Inside, I'm Dancing. So quite a, a mix of films there. Yeah, and we talk about, you know, each of those films in the interview, and he's a really interesting guy with, um, I think, some genuinely candid insights into his work. Absolutely, but let's let's get to it. Give the people what they want, Cam. Roll that clip. And joining us now it is none other than Jeffrey Kane. Jeffrey, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. Um, so when we have guests on the show, obviously one of the things we want to talk about today is Goldeneye. But we want to paint a little bit of a picture for our listeners about your career as we go along. So our first question is always, how did you get into screenwriting? Into screenwriting or into this particular film? Screenwriting as a whole. I did some stuff for television Mm -hmm. and um, a British film production company at the time called Zenith was interested Mm -hmm. in me and they uh, hired me to write a couple of movies for them, neither of which unfortunately was produced, but they liked the result and the word spread. And eventually Barbara Broccoli came to me for... um, a movie she wanted to make about the Navajos, um, Navajo Code Talkers. And mm-hmm. we were friends and she liked what I did. And then when she ran into difficulties, I, she called me and said, can you fix this? It was like that. Okay, so, you know, when you get that call for Goldeneye, I know that the story credit is to Michael France. What was the case? Now, I know that Bruce Firestein also worked on the film. Where do you fall in the process? Michael France had written a screenplay for them, an original. This was the first Bond movie that wasn't based on Ian Fleming. Mm-hmm. And 
he'd come up with a very an interesting idea, but considering the political situation at the time, the Soviet Union had collapsed, and where do you take James Bond? So he came up with the notion of um, the, the Bond enemy being another uh, agent. Um, he also contrib contributed the idea of the bad guy uh, who was using um, uh, an EMP to um, gain financial control of London, and basically that was that was it. And there was there was also some stuff set in Russia that didn't make it. But it didn't have um, any of the usual Bond ingredients in it. It didn't appear to be tailored for the Bond market. And Barbara and her brother. A half brother Michael Wilson, who were co-producing, felt that it needed strongly to be strongly rewritten. It's the usual process in film that people rewrite other people's scripts, but this one she felt needed a lot of work, and I gave it a lot. Um, I changed almost everything except the basic premise, with the result that Michael Michael France was unhappy and. The credit that um, I don't know, I don't know if you know how this works, but producers and studios put forward what's called a tentative writer credit. And if the writers are happy that that represents what they want to see on the screen, they let it go. And if they're not happy, they contest it and ask for an arbitration. There was a protest by Michael France who felt that he deserved a screenwriting credit. And he protested, and there was an arbitration. And the result of that arbitration was that Fristin and, and I were to get writing credit, and Michael was to get story credit, which he deserved because the basics of that story were his. How Fristin came on, I did a draft um, screenplay which very substantially altered Michael France's screenplay, and um, Barbara called me one day after I delivered the, my screenplay and said, I've got good news and bad news. And I said jokingly, oh, the good news is you love my screenplay, the bad news is I'm fired. She said, yeah, in one. <laughs> because they didn't, they didn't fire me. They just brought Bruce Fairstein on to do some extra work. I don't know why. I could have, I could have done it if they told me what they needed doing. But there we are. That's the way it goes. And I got... Um, I was awarded uh, first position credit, which means the guy in first position usually is the, the one who did the most work. And he's usually the first writer on a project. And they gave Bruce Fairstein second credit. And Michael France got story credit. Right. Now, I mean, we've obviously got a little bit of a picture there of how you got involved with GoldenEye. But one thing I want to do just to take us back a little bit is what's your connection with Bond? Were you a fan growing up watching the films or did you oh, not particularly like them? No more than than um, many people. I wasn't a, a, a fanatic. I always enjoyed watching Bond movies and I had my own favourites too. I felt, and this has nothing to do with why Barbara hired me because they didn't tell her this until after she hired me, I felt that it had gone off the rails with um, um, well, we all know that uh, the guy who played Bond in, in on Her Majesty's Secret Service wasn't out of the top draw. Um, but I also felt that the Roger Moore Bonds 
the, those movies were, were silly. They were, they'd become comic books. You know, Bond's teeth fighting on the edge of a cliff with a, an eight-foot giant with steel teeth and winning <laughs> the fight. And Roger Moore, good-looking guy, nicely built, but, you know, he's nobody's idea of a hard man. So it's that. And the seven-foot giant or whatever he was, surviving a fall from an aircraft and picking himself up, dusting himself off and being bad all over again, didn't really belong to the real world. And I thought that we needed to pull Bond back since, since Barbara was hiring me to do Bond, I thought, let's look at how to do Bond. So first of all, the, the post-Soviet uh, story was a good idea because this was how Bond would behave in what was then the real world after the Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, but it was also a question of keeping those things which Bond fans liked. Bond's sense of humor, his wit, um, uh, his character as being a womanizer, um, a, a tough guy who also looks classy. He fitted into a casino, but it also fit into a bar and brawl, all of that stuff. And I know what you're going to ask me next. Uh, that was how Bond was chosen because uh, Pierce Brosnan was exactly what Bond, the Bond franchise needed at that time. Tim Dalton was good looking, physically big and strong looking, but, and this is the script, it's not, it's not um, Tim, Tim's fault, but the scripts didn't give him enough suaveness, they didn't give him enough wit, and you needed, they needed somebody who would do that. The franchise was in trouble. And if I'm anticipating that question, then let me do that too. <laughs> the point where I came onto the Bond movie franchise, there'd been a dispute with MGM that had lasted something like six years, a, a legal dispute. And Bond was in trouble because if he didn't fix that, um, it wouldn't be any more Bond movies. And I think mine was the 17th. So they needed a strong script. The money was already earmarked. They needed a strong script to pull them out of trouble. And Barbara said, that's now all on you. And then it was a question when we got the script of finding a new bond because Tim didn't, either he didn't want to do anymore or his contract didn't allow for him to do anymore. And they, they approached uh, Pierce some years before, before Tim Dalton became Bond, it was, they'd approached Pierce Brosnan and he was tied up with um, a TV thing he was doing, whose name I can't recall. What was it called? That TV thing that... Yeah, uh, Remington Steel. Steel. Remington Steel. He, had a, he couldn't get out of his contract for Remington Steel, so he had to say reluctantly no. And when they needed a replacement for uh, Tim Dalton, Pierce was the first guy they went to. So they arranged a meeting in, uh, in the Four Seasons where I was to meet um, Pierce. But before we got to that, there was a, a whole process. Uh, Barbara wanted Pierce, end of story. Um, but there were also other people who thought that maybe they should try to revamp the whole thing by going with an unknown. Um, and she arranged, Barbara arranged meetings with uh, auditions with young good-looking well-built actors who could jump to the top of the tree by getting the bond part 
So, you know, anecdote, we're in a restaurant and we were actually having lunch with a, a director, not Martin Campbell, but another director. No point in telling you who he is. He's a director you'll have heard of, but he wasn't absolutely top draw. That aside, Barbara looked at her watch and realized that she was running 25 minutes late for a series of auditions in her office with a number of young Bond candidates. And she said, oh my God, I'm, I'm gonna be late. And time we get there, it's gonna be two o'clock. And I said, well, what's the problem? You know, it's only half an hour. You're gonna so you, you know, you're gonna be a little bit late. Call ahead and tell them to wait. Oh, it's gonna take forever to get there. Because it turned out she didn't want to drive on the freeway. She had a, a Volvo 750 Turbo and she didn't want to drive on the freeway because freeways were scary. No problem, I said, I'll drive. So I drove and I got them there in 20 minutes. Got her there in 20 minutes, but it was hairy. I was shifting from, there's a point where you join um, the freeway in question, I remember it was the 105, but you join it and you have to exit the next exit right across the carriageway. So you, the moment you join, you've got to be crossing three, four lanes of traffic in order to make the exit. So it's like that. And she's covering her eyes, this poor girl. She was terrified. But I got them there, I got her there, and I pulled up in, in the underground car park below her office. And she's a jelly. And I said, well, how did I do? Did I pass? Did you, did you pass what? Did I pass the test? That was a Bond test. You know, I'm thinking you might hire me for Bond. She said, you're too old. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we went up to the interviews and there were a lot of young guys trying to show themselves at their best and not one of them had the charisma you needed. And she said, it's got to be Pierce Brosnan. So we interviewed Pierce Brosnan and I told him the story. We, took, we had lunch at the Four Seasons. And uh, my wife was with me in Los Angeles and she was waiting in the lounge while we all went into lunch. And she says, um, what happened during the lunch was that after the first course, Pierce got up and said, you know, excuse me, I'll be five minutes. And we thought he was going to the loo. He wasn't, he went out into the lounge. He needed to compose himself because this was an important interview for that guy, mm -hmm. right? And my wife, Lorna, said that she'd been waiting for 15 minutes to get served. Pierce Brosnan comes out and sits down next to her because they'd been introduced. She was a familiar face. Immediately, the waitresses were swarming around, wanting to take their order. So, but, um, yeah, he wanted it. And I was perhaps influential in persuading Barbara that, they needn't look any further. They were worried because um, he looked right, but they weren't sure he could be tough enough, look tough enough. And I thought he had the, that edginess that Roger Moore never had yeah. and that mm -hmm. John Conroy had. You know, you've got to be witty, you've got to be urbane, you've got to fit into a casino, fit into a, a, a quite classy society. And yet you have to have that edginess 
that tells you if there's a fight with anybody, he's going to come out on the right side of it. And Pierce had that. So in the end, Pierce got the job. And now it's your turn. I've, I've said <laughs> sort of in answer to that simple question. <laughs> well, I am curious because, you know, they were coming off of License to Kill with Timothy Dalton, which had really underperformed. And it was a movie that takes a lot of, you know, uh, risks with the Bond formula. It really does change it up, as you say. I'm really curious what sort of the direction coming from Eon was in terms of what they wanted from Goldeneye, because this one is in some ways very classic, but in the other ways is actually commenting on Bond as a character throughout. I'm just curious what they were kind of telling you, do's and don'ts or direction in terms of the tone. Well, the story obviously was contemporary because it had that setting <clears throat> with the, um, the graveyard of all those statues of former Soviet leaders and all the hammers and sickles were dumped now because nobody wanted them anymore. So it was contemporary for a start. The rivalry between Bond and, um, what was he, 008? Uh, Trevelyan. The Sean Bean character, Trevelyan, who had been Bond's pal and, and his equal. That was an important element. And we made the bad guys modern bad guys because they were computer-related internet related and this was the dawn of the internet all this discussion and the writing of the script was taking place in 1994 and the internet was pretty damn new we had to get um barbara got a got us a hacker to tell us roughly what the screen would look like nobody could even imagine how you would do this uh, the boris character mm -hmm. he was a little bit a little bit ahead of his time and we had a hacker to talk us through that. So the other thing I wanted was keep the wit, keep the urbanity, show the toughness, and make it all work in a contemporary setting. Now, the self-directed irony of having um, M be a woman wasn't in my script, I have to say. But if Barbara had said, do another draft, but make Bond a woman, I could have done it. But for some reason, she gave it to Bruce. That was basically the the brief, and um, it didn't the, the the France script didn't have an interesting enough structure. It started off; it felt like it felt almost like a, an Hercule Poirot movie. Bond was given a mystery by M, and he had to figure out what was going on. It, it didn't work. That's not how Bond works. And I remember telling Barbara in a meeting, Bond throws himself in and flies by his pants, seat of his pants, until something breaks and then he deals with it. And they didn't have that. So that's where the super helicopter came in. Um, and that led us into act two, and then it developed after that. One thing I want to touch on, and you sort of led us off talking about M, is the female characters of Goldeneye. Because it's one of the things I always enjoy about it. And actually, just this week, I went and watched Goldeneye at the uh, Prince Charles Cinema in London. So it's nice right. to see it on the big screen again. Um, the question is, uh, did, were you, what did you do in terms of creating Natalia and creating Xenia? You know, were you specifically trying to make great female characters? Because they're some of the best in Bond history. Yeah, I, I created both of those characters. Um, I wanted somebody who was the nice, sweet girl. Um, and usually the nice sweet girl gets killed at some point. And somebody who was the tough girl that dupes him, but 
is not duped. I mean, she's the assassin. And a, a female Russian assassin makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, I, I claim credit for those, but not for M being, being Judy Dench. But I could have done it had they asked, but they didn't. But I didn't have a problem with that. That seemed like a direction, uh, a step in, in, the, in the modern direction, too. I suppose then, if we're just talking about just the two female characters again, then, because those two are probably go down history as some of the most memorable female characters in any Bond film. So credit to you for coming up with them. Um, what were you trying to do when you when you created those characters? W was it to change the direction of Bond female characters? What was in your mind when you created them? I don't think so. I think it was very much in line with what had been done. Remember, I said that that Michael Francis script, and I don't want to talk ill of him because he's dead. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking ill of him. He's saying he didn't take it in the right direction for this film. That's not a criticism of his writing or, or of him as a writer. But he left out a lot of things that the Bond fans expect to find. He left out Q. There were no gadgets. There was no, um, he didn't have a, a, a proper three-act structure. Um, what else did he leave out? There were various things that should have been there that weren't there. Right. And one of the one of the ingredients, the normal essential ingredients, usually there are two women, um, one of whom is sympathetic, and often the victim, like in Goldeneye, you get um, the girl who was killed, painted gold, mm -hmm. and then you get the other one, the tough one, on the black one. Pussy galore. So. I think in, uh, I felt the need of those two, one who was vulnerable and whom he had to protect, and one who was dangerous, the dangerous girl. Mm -hmm. the, you know, the, in our imaginations, there's always the dangerous girl is sexy. So, okay, kind of jumping off of that, just to the villains, um, you know, you talked about how like Jaws was a little too cartoony, for example, back in the Roger Moore days. Yeah. And just as Natalia and Xenia are ranked generally as top tier Bond leading ladies, um, 006, um, you know, the Sean Bean character is ranked very highly, but also, you know, you mentioned Boris, I think of Oromov. Somehow you really have a murderer's row of villains here that are incredibly memorable. What kind of goes into the crafting of a Bond villain, a trope that is obviously well-worn and has been taken to so many extremes, like when you're approaching it, what, what freshness were you looking to add to the franchise? For the sake of freshness, you don't want a guy sitting above a shark pool, stroking a cat, and then releasing a lever. So again, given the, the political and social context of Russia in 1994, when we first were doing this, it seemed a good idea to have a, a rogue Russian general. And Boris was there because the um, EMP, device needed to be conceived and constructed by a geek so you needed a geek and a, a i think i thought a russian general with an armored train and the inspiration for that was dr zhivago mm. remember the armored train that strelnikov has in zhivago yeah but that's, that's the look i was going for mm. and, and the tank since i'm thinking of the train i'm thinking also of the tank that was another device I wanted. We've seen Bond doing all sorts of things, but I wanted I wanted him to get into a Russian tank to escape and turning left and driving straight through a building. That struck <laughs> me as being a very fun thing for Bond to do. 
So that's why Urimov is what he is. Um, and it fits in with, with the political t temper having changed in Russia after Gorbachev. Of course, we didn't know it was going to turn back again. Can I just, there's something else I wanted to mention, and it was in my mind a moment ago when I said the tank. It's the tank and the train. Oh, yeah, the stunts. Hmm. Do you want to talk about the stunts? Uh, well, yeah, I want to get to that, but sorry, just, is there anything you have to say about the 006 character, the Sean Bean villain? Because I've heard various reports that, you know, he was going to be older, and then they were going to make him more of a contemporary of Bond. Sort of, where did that kind of work through the evolution of the story? The idea was, and I think it, it was in uh, it was in the original Michael France uh, take that the villain here should be somebody worthy of his meta, not just a thug, uh, but somebody who had to have the same training, the same abilities, and also the same license to kill. Now, you know, fighting your own brother, as it were, your twin brother, and that gave it a lot of power, a lot of zest. So who? should be that guy. I think Sean Bean was a great choice. He looks the part. Right. And that's where he came from. But the fact that he was a turncoat made it more interesting still. And why was he a turncoat? Because he had to have a grievance. Some particular moment had to have occurred that turned him from an MI6 agent into a traitor and working for the, for the other side. So that comes out at a certain point. And then the big climactic fight, um, the array, is between these two, well, 006, 007, between the, the two secret agents who had the same fighting skills. That would, that would obviously decide the issue. And clearly, because this is a Bond franchise, it was Bond who would have to win it. Right. There are rules of these things, you know. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, you were mentioning the stunts, and um, that was something that actually interested me because with movies nowadays, often the writer has no control over what the action scenes are because they're all pre-vised in advance. I'm curious what freedom you had when it came to designing action sequences. Very little. I designed the jumping off the motorcycle off the cliff and catching onto the plane, even though I thought it was a bit incredible, but nevertheless, it works. But I didn't design the bungee jump off the dam at the beginning. That was, I don't know who did that, but Martin Campbell was pushing for that. He had it storyboarded and everything. And I said, well, what is this? I haven't written this thing. Oh, no, but you, you will, because this is what we're going to open with. And I said, as I had said during the script meetings with, with Barbara and Michael, you mustn't make a Bond movie stunt-led. By all means, let's have great stunts. Michael was all for the stunts. He wanted, he would, if he'd had his way, it would have been 10 stunts through the movie, big stunts, and somehow a story would have been cobbled up around them. And I said, no, that's not the way to write a film. You write a story with a strong narrative and a plot, and then you put the stunts in along the way. And audiences will be waiting for them. But if it's if it's if there are too many of them, there'll be nothing to hold them together. And I sort of got my way on that because Barbara took my side. But the opening stunt, which I have to say is a spectacular thing, it's like seven hundred feet, um, wasn't my my idea. It was Martin Campbell's, and it was a good idea, as opposed to another idea that was Martin Campbell's, which was not a good idea, 
and he overruled me on it. Do you want to hear about that? The yeah. scene that he was? Yeah. The one that was? Yeah? Yeah, Go for it. Do you remember when Bond seeks out his old KGB enemy? Um, mm -hmm. Zukovsky? No, the one played by, by Rob, Robbie. Yeah, um, Valentin Zukovsky. Valentin, yeah. He seeks out Valentin in this place in some back street of Moscow. And he sticks a gun in Valentin's face and somebody sticks a gun at the back of his head because Valentin had all thought him and in he's brought and sat down in a chair. And then you remember there are a couple of half-naked girls wearing cowboy boots who shoot guns at the seat and either side of his important parts, right? Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. That's not a scene I love. And if I'd had my way, that scene wouldn't have been there. But I can tell you what would have been there instead. And I'm hoping you'll agree that it would have been better. I think you cut from the moment when Bond has the gun at his head and his, the gun in, in Valentin's face to a table, a card table, Green Bay's small round card table. Bond's on one side, Valentina's on the other side. And in the middle, there is um, an automatic pistol, Bond's Beretta. And Valentin, this pack of cards too. And Valentin says, Bond, we are going to play Russian roulette. And Bond says, I'm sorry, but you don't play Russian roulette with an automatic pistol. You play it with a revolver. That's the whole point. No, we're going to play with this. What we cut the cards for is who goes first. <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so, um, Bond cuts the cards and he draws a nine or, or a jack and Valentin cuts and he draws an ace. So he says, you're first, Bond. So... James Bond picks up the gun and we don't know what he's going to do with it. And what's going through our heads is what's going through his head. Every fire, every time I pull the trigger, this is, is going to be a bullet coming out. This is not a revolver. There's no chamber. If I put it to my head and fire, I'm dead. If I put it to Valentin's head and fire, then either it'll be empty or eight guys will rush in and machine gun me. So he puts it to his head, and there should be a long, long moment while we're wondering what he's going to do. And he pulls the trigger, and it goes click. And Valentin laughs and says, Bond, Bond, you are the only man I know who can tell difference between fully loaded Beretta automatic and one which has no bullets in it, just by the weight. He picked it up, and he knew it was empty. <laughs> That's pretty great. Uh, that, that is pretty great, actually, yeah. Quintessential Bondian moment, don't you think? Mm -hmm. uh, more so than stand by your man, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, was that something that you actually wrote in your version of the script, or was that a pitch at one point? Yeah. Now, mm -hmm. my wife was very ill at the time, so I couldn't go to the, to the set. Um, and yeah, I wouldn't necessarily have gone on the right day anyway. Because mm -hmm. once a director gets a script, he feels free after he's force the writer to make whatever changes he wants to make. He feels free to fiddle with it on the set to his own satisfaction. And he took out that scene with Russian roulette and put in the one we're talking about. And mm -hmm. I think that's a weakness. I think that's a, that's a, a weak spot.
in what would have it would have been a, a very interesting moment. And no action, but just a clever moment. Bond outthinking Valentine. Hmm. Valentine thinking very cleverly too. What do you do if we're gonna play Russian roulette and I give you an automatic pistol? You don't have many choices. Well, it gives credit to both characters, neither of them are stupid. Exactly. Whereas, hmm. you know, the cowgirl shooting that Bond's shooting around Bond's legs isn't doing anything in my humble view. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that scene because what I want to talk about now is what actually did make the final cut of the film and ask you some of your favorite moments, the things that you created. What, what did you like seeing on the screen? In particular, hmm. um, I'm not dissatisfied with almost everything else. It changed anyway a little bit when Bruce Thirstein did his draft. He added um, some stuff that was necessary because M was Judy Dench. So, you know, there will be some changes to dialogue there. And, um, oh, I said, the other thing I, I, I'm not happy about, I wrote a scene with Q, and I don't think it was filmed interestingly enough. I don't think the full force of what I was doing, it's a humorous moment, and it doesn't, it doesn't work on screen for me because it wasn't filmed right. It's where Q showing Bond his gadgets in his little workshop and Bond is looking around, picking things up. You know, this is where he gets his poison pen and mm -hmm. um, the, you know, the pen that fires deadly pellets. And at the end of the scene, he, he picks up what looks like a bread roll with, some, with lettuce and tomato in it and a BLT. Mm -hmm. And the panic on Q's face when he says, don't touch that. And you think, my God, what is it? And how, you know, Bond puts it down very gingerly, very carefully. And then Q says, that's my lunch. Now that, that should be a hilarious moment, but it doesn't work on the screen because I think Martin filmed too quickly or Q played it too quickly. It's just kind of a throwaway moment and it should have been a big comic end to that, that scene. Mm -hmm. The follow-up, uh, that's my lunch line, is quite quick afterwards, you're right. It's too quick. Mm. Well, just to just to go back to the question, is there any scenes that you were quite proud of seeing them on the big screen that, that made the final cut? I think the, the, the jump from the dam is wonderful. Um, mm. The tank stuff works pretty well. Yeah, I think everything else works well enough. I mean, it was a good piece of journey work. It's not going to win. It's not going to win direct the best director Oscars, but then you know James Bond films don't win best anything. So. It is what it is, and it was directed in a very workmanlike fashion by a competent director. And I'm not dissatisfied with anything else, really, except that one scene with Russian roulette that I think would have been a Bond classic. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm curious, you know, you raised the, you know, uh, Martin Campbell, the director, and he did both this one and Casino Royale. Generally, fans look to him as one of the best of the Bond directors, but I'm curious, this is his first time out. The, just your collaboration process with him as you're writing the film, how involved was he in terms of story? I mean, you talked about the uh, bungee jump sequence, but... Not much. I mean, he put that in. That's definitely all his. He can have credit for that. I had a different opening scene. And I can't remember what it was, but it wasn't that. Oh, I know. I think he was on... Somebody was on the loo. Oh, a, a Russian agent in, in um, uh, Severnaya was on the loo and the window behind him opened very softly and Bond came through and, and knocked him on the head. It was, it, 
it was kind of funny, but it was how Bond got into the complex. Mm-hmm. The window. But no, the, 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 the jump is great. It's a wonderful shot. And I have no complaints about that at all. I don't think he altered much else. He, he destroyed, took out and, and threw away my, um, my Russian roulette moment. But I don't think he did much else that I would object to. Mm-hmm. We had meetings, as you always do. The writer always has meetings with the director. The director, it's, a, it's generally a horse trading process. The director says, um, I don't like that. Can we change that? Can we take that out? Can we put something instead of that or something in addition to that? And you say, well, I really don't want to. And this is why. And then you try to explain in dramaturgical terms why that doesn't make sense. And he'll overrule you. But then the next time that moment occurs, you say, well, I gave you so-and-so. Now you give me this. And a good director, one who understands the relationship, will make concessions. Okay, you can have that, I'll take this. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, a, a tyrannical, domineering director will want his way on everything. And you have to argue hard. Right? I generally argue my case very vehemently. Um, the directors don't care for it. They generally <laughs> not to employ me uh, after, after one, go, one goes enough. Because I fight my corner. I say, I effectively say, although not usually in so many words, look, when it comes to the job of directing a film, you know more than I do. I wouldn't even dream of standing on a set and instructing anybody what to do or where to place the cameras or what kind of lenses to use. That's not my job. This is my job. If I understand anything, I know it's how to construct the screenplays and how to write dialogue. And if you're going to tell me how to do that, then you might as well just take over the work. Now, a lot of directors are doing exactly that now. There are more writer-directed movies now than there have ever been. And for that reason, they think they know better, and they don't. There have been a handful. You can count them on one hand. Great writer-directors in history of the history of cinema, people like Billy Wilder and um, John Huston. They write as well as they direct. And when they do both, they make great films. But now you get Joe Soap, written and directed by Joe Soap. And who is Joe Soap? Nobody. And, if, and it's right that he should be nobody because nobody's doing. So there we are. I'm, I'm old-fashioned in that respect. Yeah. I believe writers have their job. Directors have their job. And although I'll take notes happily, I may get something wrong and a director may see it. Fine. But if, I, if it's not wrong, and I know it's not wrong, why should I let him mess with it? Because he's the boss. He's the director. And auteur theory says he knows more than everybody else put together. And he doesn't. Yep. Sorry if I'm treading on any sensibilities here. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, yeah. We, yeah, we appreciate you fighting your corner. You may be a wannabe writer-directors, both of you. <laughs> That's my dream. <laughs> You've just crushed it. <laughs> I've argued, I've had these arguments with the best of them. Yeah. <laughs> they always end up in a temper. Yeah. I had a of a room once with a director um, and say, I'm going out for a medicinal smoke. I need a medicinal smoke. <laughs> well, I, I'm curious, um, Goldeneye was very successful. If there was ever any talks or anything about you working on one of the follow-ups, because I know you didn't, but was there any talks? And for the reason I've just given you. Mm-hmm. I mean, Is that why? 
I knew Barbara well. I'd written another movie for her about the Navajo Indians, and um, she never made this that film, the, the Navajo film, because she was too heavily involved in the Bond movies. She was happy mm. to do that year after year after year after year. But when the next Bond movie was made, it was Fertino Renty, and then the one after that, because he was easier to live with. I'm not easy to live with. Fair. <laughs> I have that reputation. Right. I can't help um, that. Who I am. Well, we have a couple of uh, Twitter questions about GoldenEye, so uh, I'll throw them at you. So the first one comes from Jason, and he asks, how difficult was it or freeing was it to write a Bond film without any influence from Ian Fleming's books? Well, it's an interesting question. It's a good question. It would have been liberating if it hadn't been, um, if I'd been the first writer on the project. But I was limited by Michael Francis' script. Now, I didn't have to adhere to all of it, but they obviously liked it enough to want to keep certain elements, the basic elements, and I thought they were very good elements. I remember I'm, <laughs> when I was, um, when the film was premiered in London, it was a royal premiere, and uh, the Queen didn't come, but Prince Charles came to it. And we were all lined up, all the main contributors to the film were lined up with people standing behind them. and. Prince Charles went from one to the other along the line. Hello, he was introduced. This is Barbara Boccoli, the producer. She was doing the introducing of Wilson Wars. This is Martin Campbell, the director. This is Jeffrey Kane, the writer. And he said to me, Did you invent the story for this film? And instead of saying yes, I was honest, John here said, Well, no. And I meant to follow it by saying, I said he did, meaning. This is the guy who came up with the basic plot idea, and I did, but he didn't get a chance. He just moved on straight away to Michael, Michael Francis. But that was the limitation. Michael Francis' structure was the limitation because it had the essential ingredients already in place. Uh, so the answer is, I didn't miss Ian Fleming. I didn't feel liberated from Ian Fleming because I wasn't liberated from Michael France, and not not unhappy to be bound by that because I thought the the basic plot structure was good. Just a quick follow-up there. How familiar were you with the Fleming novels? Like, had you read them all? Oh, yeah, when, when Barbara hired me, she gave me a bundle of well, VHS tapes they were then, every, practically every Bond film from the beginning to that, and told me to watch them all in sequence. And the books, I think I already had one or two, and I read another one or two. I didn't read them all. Mm -hmm. um, so I knew the Bond world pretty well by the time I came down and settled down to write. Yeah, it was a Thursday afternoon. I was playing a game of Scrabble with my late wife, and um, the phone rang. You know, and it, I got up and answered it, and it was Barbara calling from California. I was in Herefordshire, and she said, um, "We're in trouble." I think she might have said, well, we're in deep shit here. How soon can you get to Los Angeles? Well, first I've ever heard of this. What for? I need you to rewrite a movie. I said, well, I can't come tomorrow. So this was a Thursday. Come on Saturday. So they arranged it uh, that I went out on the Saturday. When I got there, I said to Margaret, how, I said to Barbara, how long is all this going to take? 
you know, the meetings, not the writing, the meetings before I can go home and get started on my computer. I don't know. I said, well, you know how I feel about being away from my wife for that length of time. And she said, all right, most writers, they want cocaine and hookers. You want your wife and candy. <laughs> um, and she said, uh, yeah, listen, if it takes three weeks, we'll bring her out here. And three weeks later, I reminded her that what she said, she's in the air. <laughs> She'd already put her on a plane. So what was, what, I missed the question. I'm sorry, I got distracted. What was the question? Oh, it's just familiarity with Fleming, but you pretty much answered that. Yeah, that's 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 right. That's how it came because you know I say because because Lorna was um, was ill, I couldn't leave her to come to watch the filming and have any hand in it. It's nice mm -hmm. to be on set when a problem occurs. It doesn't. They don't need you there, and you often feel like a spare wheel, a writer on a film set. But if you're there, they'll take advantage of the fact that you're there to. To, to discuss something. I was on the set of a constant gardener in Kenya, purely by chance, well, not by chance, I've been sent for about something else. And I was watching Ray Fiennes do a scene. Um, and just before he started doing the scene, he came over to me and showed me the script and said, what am I thinking here? I'd never been asked that by um, an actor before. It was a lovely moment. He wanted to know what I thought he was thinking at that moment mm. in the scene. Great. Very respectful. Well, I've got one more question from Twitter, and I know Cam wants to ask you a couple of questions about Constant Gardener as well, actually, so we'll get to that in a second. Uh, but this question comes from Sam on Twitter, and he asks, was there anything in particular you tried to do to differentiate yourself from the Bond formula? Obviously, you had just watched the previous 16 films and read some books coming into it. Was there any steps you tried to make to make it stand out? The answer to that is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I didn't want to diverge from the Bond formula any more than I had to, because it's the Bond formula that's made people like Sam um, a Bond fan. You know what that formula is. Everybody knows what that formula is. Suave, sophisticated, but it's a roughness and a toughness. I'm just under the surface, ready to bubble up in moments of, uh, of need. Um, he's a womanizer and needs to be good-looking enough to be believable as a womanizer. I mean, you wouldn't cast Danny DeVito as James Bond, or me for that matter. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it needs to be high stakes. The formula requires that Bond has got to save not just Britain, but probably the world. Um, there needs to be a villain. He's got to be a pretty evil uh, kind of psychopathic villain, whether or not he plays with cats. <laughs> there needs to be at least one girl, probably two. There needs to be a lot of wit in the face of death. And Bond talking back to Goldfinger while he's on the table, about to be cut in half. That sort of thing makes people smile. Mm -hmm. the, the guy is so cool and sure of himself that he can quit even in the face of what seems like certain death. So, no, the answer is you don't want to diverge too far from the formula. A new wrinkle, yeah, and we had that with the, with the setting for the story. But to diverge, I think, is what Michael Franz tried to do, to be honest. I think he tried to revamp the, the um, franchise by taking us away from what people expected of Bond, and it was a mistake. And I corrected it. 
queue right. with devices is another thing you need. Those strange devices that Q gives him, which you know you're going to see used at some point. The fast car. You need, I think we had a car. There was a, a BMW that mm -hmm. we got, never used, totally wasted. I don't know why they bothered to get it. Never did anything. I didn't know about it. It was done after the strip was finished. They got a, a BMW to um, give them product placement rights and mm. pay them product placement. But if I'd known that, I would have found something for the BMW to be doing. Yeah, it's very much like an advertising shot in the movie. I remember being frustrated by that when I saw it in theaters back, you know, in 95. It's there. It's going to be doing its stuff. Mm -hmm. I, I did have one quick question, actually. Sorry, before Cam jumps in. It's a very particular question about the film, but it sprung to my mind. Obviously, this is the first time we see the Jack Wade character. Yeah. Is there a reason we went with a new character like Jack Wade instead of going back to the Felix Lighters of the past? I think um, Joe Don Baker looks the part and is credible as, as a, a CIA field agent in a way mm. that the other guy wasn't. But the truth is that that character didn't really have... I can't remember whether I had him in my script at all. It may have been something that Bruce Thurston um, introduced, so I can't really answer it. Why to change, if you're going to do it, why change from light, yeah, lighter to, to this guy? I don't know. Um, maybe the, the fellow who played lighter in the early movies wasn't available. Maybe they thought, let's have somebody, and I think Joe Don Baker does it very well, given mm -hmm. what he had to do. So that's probably the answer there. Just one quick thing. Um, the GoldenEye film spawned an incredibly popular and influential GoldenEye video game. I was just yeah. curious if you had any conversations or, I mean, I know you didn't probably write the script for the game or anything, but if, just if you were kind of aware of it and if you had to answer any questions regarding that game development or anything. Four word answer. Zero input, zero dollars. Oh, too bad. Right. It was... I think uh, much of my life was spent playing that game in terms of my younger years. <laughs> uh, now, in 2021, if my agent was doing a deal for me in a Bond movie, we would look at the, the uh, question of spin-offs in terms of electronic games and get me a little percentage of the profits. Mm. But it wasn't a big thing then. Mm -hmm. Zero input, zero dollars. Uh, well, I've got a couple other questions just in terms of some of your other work. Constant Gardner, you referenced it, you know, Oscar nominated for that film, congrats. And then Rachel Weiss, you got a uh, Best Supporting Actress win for her. I'm just really curious. We've talked about uh, Lakare. We did Little Drummer Girl on the podcast, and we've got many more Lakare stories coming up. Just about the challenges of adapting Lakare for the screen. Not so much the problems of adapting John Lakare. It's a, uh, the problems were adapting this particular book were that there was too much information, too much stuff going on, and a point of view problem. Early in the book, you have a couple of Scotland Yard detectives sent out to Kenya, which was a former British colony. They didn't, you know, they're independent, but they wanted help. And they sent for uh, a couple of Scotland Yard detectives who go out there and investigate the death of Tessa, and they give you all the answers. Within half an hour of seeing, starting the film, you know everything you need to know. There are no mysteries left. And I 
went to the meeting with, with Mike Newell, who was director in place at the time. And one of the questions he asked, so what are you going to do about these two Scotland Yard guys? And I said, I'm going to deep sex them. They didn't they have no place in the story. They give away all the information. I don't know what they're doing there. They're gone. And I also said that John le Carre was enough of a skilled thriller writer not to give away his plot unless he intended to. And since the film, the, the book, was a polemic against drug companies and what they do, he was more interested in the polemical side than he was in the thriller side. So what effectively he was telling the reader is don't fret about who's responsible, don't fret about who did what, Here's how it happened. Concentrate on the badness of what they were doing. Mm -hmm. You can't do that in a movie. So it has to be uncovered by uh, Justin over time mm -hmm. with clues. Now, the uh, Rachel Weiss character really did grab huge attention when that movie came out. And I'm just curious about writing that character, because just as with Goldeneye, you know, you wrote a female lead character who was very dynamic and really did grab the audience's attention. I'm just curious about the process of creating that character for the screen. I didn't create it for Rachel Weiss because I, when I was writing, I didn't know that she was going to be doing it. Uh, very rarely that a writer writes for the voice of a particular actor. They used to in the old studio days. They knew who they had. They knew Cary Grant was going to play the part, or Jimmy Stewart. And they they wrote for the character, for the actor. No, um, the Rachel Vice character was created from the book with some extra input from me. And there was a point. There was a point during filming when they had a a short rehearsal i don't know if i should even tell you this sometimes they'd have a rehearsal sitting around a room of the scene just saying the dialect not a read through but a rehearsal and then they'd go on to the set and do it and i was in the room because i happened to be there rachel bice was sitting at the one end of the room with um Danny Houston, director was to one side, and they were talking. In this it was a scene that it involved her her feelings about, um, yeah, about the Danny Houston character, and she said something like, "I think maybe I'm secretly in love with him, or secretly attracted to him." And I pointed out, you can't say that because in the email that she sends to Ham, her cousin, she says he was a five-star creep. No reason to tell Ham the guy's a creep if she doesn't feel that he's a creep. So you don't love him. And the response I got from Rachel was a Billingsgate of foul-mouthed invective, which was witnessed by Danny, and it was witnessed by Sarah Golding, who'd been our, um, our script editor. Uncalled for, maybe she had a bad day. 
The protocol for these things usually is that you go via the director if you have a comment to make to the actors. In that room, it didn't feel the right way to go. You know, I'm going to lean over and say, Fernando, can you tell Rachel that I feel blah, blah? You just say it. Hmm. Not a, it doesn't reflect to Rachel's credit. I'll say no more about it than that. Okay. Um, just jump over to uh, Exodus, Gods and Kings. I thought that's a really interesting film and in that when you look back at the history of biblical epics, you know, Ben-Hur, Ten Commandments, King of Kings, all those films, um, I'm a big fan of them. But what I really admired about Exodus, Gods and Kings was it felt like taking that and really an entirely new slant on the biblical epic. What was sort of your process of doing, yeah, Exodus? It could have been so much deeper and better. Mm -hmm. In the old days when they were making the Ten Commandments, and El Cid was part of this. They had these epics lasted three hours plus. Ten Commandments, like three and a half hours. We were told you can't have more than two hours. You cannot do the story of Moses and the Exodus in two hours. Other people managed to get slimmer stories into a greater space. I mean, how the hell? they get two and a half hours for a film like Heat, which is a great, terrific film. But two and a half hours for that, and we got two hours and 25 minutes for Exodus. So a lot of what I put in for the most, I gave Moses an arc, and a lot of that was changed. And it was changed by Ridley Scott, and it was changed by uh, Steve Zalian. So, it feels to me eviscerated. Mm -hmm. It may be better than the old fashioned way of doing it, but it's not what I had in mind for it. So I so, was disappointed. How long was your original draft? In, in pages or in length of running time? Uh, either or. I think the original draft probably would have run closer to three hours. Yeah. And I okay. didn't consider that excessive, given how epics were no longer fashionable. So you're going back to an older format. And I, I would have thought they could give us two and three quarter hours, two hours and 50 minutes. But they didn't. Studio called the shots on that and Ridley cut his cloth accordingly. Um, but he cut out the wrong things. He kept cut out the, the, the character stuff and the plot stuff and he put in lots more CGI action scenes. So I don't feel it worked. I thought the child god edition though was really smart like i thought that was genius i really like that yeah um but it's the sort of project i wonder if you know had it waited a couple of years it could have wound up on something even like a netflix or whatever where they would have done it service over a longer runtime that would have been good mm -hmm. yeah yeah the child god i'm glad you liked it that to me was like the big that was like one of those revelatory moments where you're like, I've never seen this before, and why have I never seen it before? And it solved the problem. You see, what, what I didn't want was a voice coming out of the clouds. Worst case, an American voice coming out of the clouds. I am the Lord thy God, Moses. Moses, bow before me. You don't believe that. God is not an American. Sorry, you're a Canadian, are you? Yeah, yeah. I am, yeah. <laughs> yeah. God is not a North American. He's not even English, but if you're going to do it, then he's got to be, he's got to be English. Um, 
there's that. That was one way to go. Then you can go the way that um, the Jesus epics have gone, where you hear God as an internal voice inside Jesus' head. You know he's not really saying speaking to Jesus, but it kind of feels as though he is. So I thought, well, make God a physical entity, but he will not be the physical entity you expect. He's not going to be an old man with a white beard. And that's, that's how I came up with doing him as a kid. Ridley liked that. That's why it stayed in the film. If Ridley right. hadn't, but it wouldn't be there. Right. Very Ridley, clever. Ridley makes his own decisions on things. <laughs> you get a direction um, say at script stage, oh, I really like that scene. And you go, yes, that's going to be the movie. <laughs> well, we've spoken about GoldenEye, we've spoken about Exodus, we've spoken about The Constant Gardener. Is there any other piece of work that you're particularly proud of, you think the listeners should check out, that maybe not, it's not something everyone's heard of? If I answer that question, I'm only going to do what I've been doing, and I can realise how I sound monotonous. Uh, all my complaints, really, are about how my scripts have been treated and how mm -hmm. directors have overruled me and put their own thing in. I have to say that for Constant Gardener, apart from the one scene that I hate, everything I wrote has been beautifully translated to the screen by Fernando Moraes. And the one thing I hated it wasn't done by me. Fernando and Ray Fiennes cocked that up between them. And I cringe whenever I watch it at that scene. Can you guess which scene that is? No, no, I can't. But if I tell you, you'll say yes. It's the scene in the bath where he pretends to be Jacques Cousteau. He's pregnant. Okay. Jacques Cousteau exploration. Oh, jeez. That wasn't mine. Right. Okay, you give me that one? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense, yeah. Bum note. <laughs> But he, d he does that. He's a great director. He's really very, very good. Um, the other couple of films that I could mention, director problems there. Um, Inside I'm Dancing, which in, in the North American market's called Rory O'Shea was here. That was directed um, as a comedy with serious moments and undertones. What it was intended to be was a serious film with comic comic moments as a light relief. So he got it totally wrong. Hmm. And everything that follows from that followed from that. The most recent film I've done, Song of Names, uh, I don't know quite why it didn't come off on the screen the way I wanted it to. People love the script, and yet the film falls a little flat, and I'm not sure I know why. Right. Just kind of that magic spark that it happens or it sometimes doesn't, I guess. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, the last thing we, we tend to do when we have guests on the show is a couple of quick questions about just spy movies. Obviously, you're, you're famous for, for making Goldeneye, but I'd really love to know what is your favorite spy film, potentially outside of the Bonds? Yeah, okay. It's um, Ridley Scott's brother directed a film called Enemy of the State. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, is it Will Smith? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That is my favorite spy movie. The guy knows something. 
and the, the, the powers that be, the CIA, come after him with everything they've got, and they watch him every minute of his day, and he hasn't got a chance, and he doesn't even know he's got the thing that they want. And then he hooks up with Gene Hackman, and Gene Hackman is a former CIA CIA guy, helps him to get away from them and get through and get avoid the surveillance. I love that film. I think that's a terrifically gripping and scary movie in its own way. Now, there are others I like, but that's the one that really that I really love. Were you a fan of The Conversation? Because Enemy of the State is sort of a loose sequel in some ways to The Conversation. I like The Conversation. A bit slow by today's standards, but I like everything with Gene Hackman in it. Right. One of my favorite actors. And Denzel Washington. Oh yes, another. I like I like um, uh, the Denzel Washington films. Like um, uh, I can't even remember the titles, but I love them. Mm-hmm. I'm Denzel Washington, and this, the ones he does that aren't spies so much as action adventure. Uh, he plays the next CIA agent, and the one where he's hired by the Mexican to look after the little girl. Man on fire. Yeah, I love that one. Right. Although I hate the ending. I mean, why is a guy going to agree to do that? It's not enough he's taken the brother kidnapped, he's kidnapped the brother. He all he has to say is, I'll give you your brother, you give me the little girl. That's a good deal. No, I'll give you your brother and then I'll give you myself to kill. Come on. <laughs> That's stupid, right? But it's yeah. a terrific film. It's got some great lines in it. Yeah, a lot of style too, Tony Scott. Wonderful style. Tony mm-hmm. Scott is one of my favorite thriller directors. Mm-hmm. Um, well, on the topic of films, but maybe with Bond films, and you said you watched them all in preparation for GoldenEye. I imagine you've watched the ones that have come afterwards as well. Is there a particular favorite you go back to? I've not watched all the ones that have come afterwards. There's a bit of sour grapes there, I think. I've seen some. Well, I mean, even going back to Sean Connery, is there a particular favorite you, you, you revisit from time to time? I, I like the last one. Um, what was the last one called? The most recent one. Spectre. Yeah. Yeah, I like that one. Daniel Craig doesn't quite do it for me. As James mm. He's got the toughness and the roughness. I don't think he's got the suaveness. Whereas Roger mm-hmm. Moore had the suaveness but didn't have the toughness, I think Daniel Craig has the toughness and not the suaveness, and both Sean Connery and Pierce Brosnan had both in the right mix. Mm-hmm. But of the, of the more recent ones, I like Spectre quite well. It's still going. I mean, you know, you don't make, what, 24 movies in a franchise, the longest franchise in movie history. Mm-hmm. And they keep doing the right things. More Barbara than Michael, I think, but they keep doing the right things to keep that going. Well, speaking of, uh, you know, upcoming Bond films, obviously this is the last one coming out hopefully soon, No Time to Die. And then Daniel Craig is moving on. At- Won't be the last. Oh, no, the last of the Daniel Craigs, according to him, at least, anyway. Daniel Craig. Yeah. Is there anyone you'd have in mind to maybe replace him and take up the mantle? Well, there's been talk. People talked about Idris Elba. Mm-hmm. But then I don't see James Bond being black. I know it's fashionable and all of that. And nothing against the black actors. I mean, Denzel Washington would be wonderful, but he's not James Bond. So I don't know who you'd go to. There's some good, good people around. Uh, Jason Isaacs, I'm thinking, maybe he's too old. 
Yeah, I mean, he he's someone who is, I think, looked at a lot uh, in the, you know, when he first showed up on the scene as like a really strong Bond candidate. Who? Uh, Jason Isaacs. Jason Isaacs, yeah. yeah. No, he's the look. Mm-hmm. I think he do it nicely. Tom Hardy gets thrown around quite a lot as well. Yeah, Tom Hardy. Um, he's not really that big a guy, Tom Hardy, physically. But then I don't suppose he has to be. But yes, he's a, he's actor enough. Certainly, he can do it. I particularly liked him in, um, in Peaky Blinders. I thought mm. standing in that. So yeah, Tom Hardy or Jason Isaacs would do it for me. But you know, I don't know who Barbara and Michael Wilson have in mind. It'd be interesting to see. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, you've talked about how you've gone through the Bonds and not seen maybe all of them, but who is the, like if you were to sum up your bond like which bond actor is the one that right away you go that's james bond john connery john connery across the board john connery didn't have to think about it for more than a second mm-hmm. and not even the first shot the sean connery movie doctor no but when he got into his stride two or three movies later he was just perfect mm-hmm. i tell you a story about that um i was talking to cubby broccoli because cubby was still involved as a consultant in those days the movie was being produced by michael and barbara but cubby was still involved and he you know he'd provide lunch and he took us around his house and we're standing in the courtyard of his house and he's telling me that um the house had been owned by dick powell and blah and blah and blah he said when they were looking for their first james bond they were based in Pinewood Studios, and there was a building with um, a gravel yard below where the cars were parked. And you, to get from the building to your car, you had to walk across the stretch of gravel. And he said he'd, he'd interviewed several people, and he'd auditioned a few people, and he'd auditioned Sean Connery, who was, he wasn't big. He'd been in a few movies, um, but he wasn't outstanding in anything. And he wasn't sure how we felt about Sean Connery until the audition was over and Connery no longer knew he was being looked at. Maybe he did. But he, he, he left the building and walked across to his car and he said, I watched Sean Connery walk unselfconsciously like a big cat and I knew I had James Bond. Mm. You think about Sean Connery's walk when he was young. Yeah. It's exactly like watching a panther walk through the, through the jungle. Big right. strides, total confidence, good balance, you know? That's what persuaded Cubby that Sean Connery was James Bond. And I don't think you've ever bettered it. I think Pierce comes in second for me. A lot of people would say Craig does, but I think Pierce does. I like right. Pierce, James Bond. I, I would agree with you. That's probably my list and my one-two is Sean then Pierce. Um, yeah, a lot of people people want to revise history and say that Sean wasn't that great. You tend to find these days, but he is he is he, Bond. He wasn't that great in Doctor No, but he was brilliant in Goldeneye and um, From Russia with Love, and we did another one after that too. Yeah, he did Thunderball. You only live twice. Diamonds are forever. He did quite a few. Yeah, he he got better as he went along. He inhabited mm-hmm. the character. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Sean Connery forever. 
Well, on that note, <laughs> that's a perfect note to end on. Jeffrey, I, I sincerely want to thank you for your time. It's uh, absolutely humbling to have you on the show. Uh, thank you so much. It's so fun to talk movies with anybody. We'll have to take you up on that offer again someday. Yeah. Ah. Well, leave a space. <laughs> take care. Thank awesome. you, Jeffrey. Well, thank you so much. Wow. That was a hell of a lot of insight into the making of GoldenEye. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, I wasn't lying when I said candid insights off the top leading into this interview. Um, we always appreciate guests who will shine a light on their work, but also give us kind of the dirt on what was going on. Yeah, some uh, some juicy goss there from the uh, the cre creation of Goldeneye. But um, I, yeah, I just appreciate someone not pulling their punches. And that seems like the kind of guy that Jeff Kane is. Yeah, and I think that was probably the type you needed brought in on Goldeneye at that point. James Bond was in kind of a weird place as a franchise coming off of License to Kill. And he th would have come in, I think, as a very strong voice for the character. He just The passion with which he talks about who Bond should be, what this movie should present... It's very clear that he was someone who really was able to stand by what makes the franchise work and knew implicitly how to make it, you know, pleasing to audiences again. He had a vision that he believed in and he saw it through. And that's, you know, credit to any creative person out there. He, he wasn't really changed by anyone else. His vision is mostly on the screen, except for things that he couldn't control. But um, I want to sort of break down a couple of the things that he spoke about, really. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of my favourite moments is just the concept of, of Pierce Brosnan stepping out of his meeting with Barbara Broccoli to uh, to psych himself back up to go back in there. You, you don't think about Pierce Brosnan in that sort of a human being. He's a god to me. So, you know, it's, it's nice to see that he has his foibles. Yeah, that was a really nice moment. And I liked it, you know, so often when we look at Hollywood films, there's a coldness to it. We all kind of look at it from the outside as like this very kind of aloof world that we'll never understand. Whereas I like that Eon has always tried to present sort of a family vibe. And you get that here in the interview that, you know, they may be quirky, but they are kind of a more relaxed, you know, welcoming environment. Yeah, I mean, the writer of GoldenEye drove Barbara Broccoli across town to go to a, a GoldenEye casting um, with an excellent Barbara Broccoli impression there from Jeff Kane as well, if I do say so myself. I would love to watch that one-man show. Uh, I think that would be the amount of people that would turn up. <laughs> and it would be me. <laughs> <laughs> but and then, like diving into Goldeneye, I think my favourite thing from what he spoke about, I'm sure you'll have some things to mention too, is that alternate scene. Yeah. I just, I'm blown away by it. And Bond almost was too in the scene. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Well, when we had Nicholas Meyer on, he gave us his pitch for Elliot Carver, what he saw Elliot Carver to be in his initial concept and you and I were just like sitting on tender hooks through that story like he had us and that was the same case here just him describing that scene where we're introduced to Zakovsky I was like why why did we not get that and also in the back of my head thinking they should do this further down the road like can they somehow reuse this concept further down the road that would be incredible well, I mean, if we're talking of rights and logistics issue, I'm sure it's just a matter of paying Jeff yeah. a sum. But I imagine they own his script already. He's been paid for it. So that, like, it happens in Hollywood a lot. We've learned from talking to screenwriters so far. It's like their ideas just go into the ether and get used for other projects. I'm thinking back to Don McPherson when we spoke about the Avengers. And he said some of the things that was in that script ended up in things like The Matrix. Yeah, and Batman and Robin as well. Yeah, I mean, Eon owns those script 
um, versions of Goldeneye so they could completely recycle them further down the road. So I, I would love to see that sequence used because I think it would be really effective and we've never seen it. We've never seen that happen. It's kind of crazy actually that we've had this many Bond films and there's never been any sort of Russian roulette um, scene brought up at all. Well, at the time of this episode coming out, there's about two weeks until No Time to Die comes out. So maybe that's sitting in the film somewhere. We just don't know about it. Mm, that's possible. Yeah, I suppose so. Mm. Um, the other thing I found quite interesting is that he was against the whole dam opening. Well, I don't know so much as against, but it just wasn't his initial concept. And because he did cite that as a moment he really enjoyed seeing on the big screen. So he obviously was impressed with it, but I'm sure at the time you'd be a little protective of your work and you'd be like, hey, like this wasn't what I envisioned. Jeff said that the stunts should be built around the story, whereas you shouldn't be hanging your hat on the stunts. And the film then, you know, he didn't write the opening like that. I mean, there was a scene filmed before where he infiltrates the base and he knocks some guys out and, and that's where you first technically see Bond and then he jumps off the dam. But that was cut from the film. Yeah. And I personally, I think the dam opening is fantastic. It's a very impactful way of meeting a new Bond. But I'm also not a screenwriter, so I can't disagree with his take on it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's such an iconic opening. I think at this point, it's definitely being brought up to the level of things like the parachute at the start of The Spy Who Loved Me. When you look at those all-time great Bond openings, it's hard to argue against you know Martin Campbell fighting for the bungee jump. Yeah. And the only other thing from GoldenEye as well was the, the change in the cue scene. With the pause and the lunch mm. line. Like yeah. I, 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 I did laugh on that, but I think he's actually right. It could have done with maybe a beat of, don't touch that. That's my lunch. Well, like comedy's all about timing, right? And I've always kind of felt the timing was a little off there just with the edit. So mm. I, I think more could, be, could have been done there. Um, I just think it's really interesting just to hear his take on the whole process of the fact he really didn't have much communication with Martin Campbell at all, or that Martin Campbell had really no input on story. It, um, you know, he has a lot of, <laughs> shall we say, negative things about writer-directors to say. Like, he really feels about each person should have their own department. And it's a way of looking at the way that Bond films are made that feels a little in the past now. Like, at the time, 100%, this is the way Bond movies were made, and that format worked for them for decades but you're seeing now as we edge towards these later ones in the craig era that they're hiring more of these directors which with much more stronger senses of story than they ever used to well i would be remiss if we didn't note some of these writer directors that he failed to mention hmm. because yeah he listed a couple but there's yeah. some pretty big ones that are, oh i don't know quite successful i'm off the top of my head quentin tarantino david lynch cam do you have some christopher nolan who We'll see. He could wind up making a Bond film one day. We never really know. And I would guess if he makes one, he'll be writing it as well. Yeah, I, I understand from like a, a work perspective. If your craft is making sandwiches and someone turns up that can make sandwiches and also work the counter at the same time in the sandwich shop, you'll be like, hey, screw you. I'm better at making sandwiches than you are. Yes, that's right, but also it saves money. So I can understand from a business point of view having someone that's more of a Swiss army knife. I, I get that appeal. Mm -hmm. Well, it is also just a older way of looking at films. If you go back to the Hollywood Golden Age, pretty rare you're getting a director who writes their own films. I mean, he names Billy Wilder there, but not a lot. Hitchcock had 
input. He's definitely shaping the story behind the scenes, but he has zero writing credits on his work, really. And I, I suppose there's also a sense of um, vision with these writer-directors. Like, they can foresee the story, and then they foresee that vision into reality by creating the picture as a director. And, and maybe that does maybe doesn't always result in good films. Maybe that results in some, you know quite bad films but you know ultimately at least their vision was realized and it wasn't really meddled with by other people which you know from what from what jeff said about some of his stuff in goldeneye was meddled with and one thing he i think touches on without ever um explicitly stating it is that the reason a lot of directors are also writers is to protect their own work and you know aaron sorkin for example great writer and there's a reason he's now directing his own films um because we hear the frustration of writers who are rewritten or don't get to see their original version brought to the screen. And when you are also the director, you can protect that and get that to the screen a lot better than you can when you're just the writer. Because, you know, um, Jeffrey Kane's journey is so much like countless Hollywood writers who wrote screenplays they were so proud of that, you know, a director or producer looked at and said, eh, change that. It just, it's a, it's a story as old as time in Hollywood. We've spoken to some of them. Mm-hmm. John August's script got, like, messed around for Charlie's Angels 2. Uh, Don McPherson's script for Avengers was severely changed around. Yep. Um, and, and that's just two of the we've spoken to. There's th- hundreds of thousands of writers out there I'm sure could share the same story. And I imagine it's quite frustrating. So I, I feel for them on that side. Oh, yeah, for sure. It, it makes complete sense to me why he would have sort of the opinions he does. I know I've spoken a lot here, Cam, but is there anything that jumped out to you? Yeah, talking about Exodus, Gods and Kings was really interesting to me because it's a movie that, you know, as you said, it has its issues. But I remember seeing it in theaters and there was some really interesting things like the plague sequence is really effective. Ridley Scott's a great visual director, but the child god stuff I genuinely thought was brilliant. You know, I wasn't just, um, you know, sugarcoating that for the guest. I genuinely, I remember watching that movie being like, I've never seen this. This is a really ingenious idea and it's hugely impactful on the movie. And I think raises up a movie that maybe in my mind, that maybe would have been forgotten, but I will forever remember it for that. It, it was interesting to hear him open up about it and he was clearly compassionate about that character because it was one of the times in the interview where he, you could tell that he was smiling talking about it. I think he had some bugbears about the experience of Goldeneye um, and some personal things that were going on at the time. But well, this is, I think, a story that was really quite personal to him and he's, he's glad you enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, do you agree with his um, statement that um, if there is a god, he should be British on screen? <laughs> As a British man... Uh, as long as it's a woman, I'm down for it. <laughs> so Alanis Morissette's out. Uh, I mean, I guess God shouldn't be Canadian on screen is what you're saying. <laughs> well, isn't that ironic? Mm, indeed. <laughs> so again, we just want to thank Jeff Kane for joining us. It has been a really fascinating time digging into the creation of arguably one of my favorite Bond films of all time. It was certainly the one that brought me into the fold. It's the one that started this whole podcast off. So he is responsible for Spy Hard in a way. No, you're right. I mean, this was a movie that, you know, it not only launched this podcast, but since then we've gone back and reviewed it again on the Cinema Savvy YouTube show. And it's a Bond film that, I mean, I enjoy watching any Bond film, but Goldeneye feels even more rewatchable with every passing year. It's one that in the 90s, I don't know that for me it jumped out as being one of the great rewatchable Bond movies, but nowadays it's one I could, you know, throw on now 
and I would be more than happy to sit through it again. So great work to Kane on, uh, I think, a screenplay that really does hold up. I have recently gone to see it at the Prince Charles Cinema with Tom Butler from the James Bond A to Z podcast and the guys from Cinema Savvy as well, you know, on the big screen for the first time. And I wasn't once bored, even though I've seen Goldeneye probably the most amount of times out of any Bond film. It was just a breathtaking experience to see it on, on the big screen. So amazing to talk about the guy that built it. And, you know, as I said, he's part of the genesis of Spy Hard. So if you want to send your hate mail to him, we will gladly pass it on. <laughs> for sure um, but yeah thank you to Jeff and thank you for joining us this week for Thunderball with Mark O'Connell and for this exploration of 1995's Goldeneye um, but Cam what are we doing next week gotcha I think I heard this the other day but just one more time gotcha <laughs> yeah so we are we're going back to the 80s we love our 80s spy comedies and we are decoding 1985's Gotcha. That's right. You demanded it, and we are going to deliver. It's one that has been brought up on Twitter many times. So here you go. You're welcome. We're both going in blind, and we also have a bonus treat coming on the next Friday. We have an interview with the director, Jeff Kenu, as well, about his experience in making Gotcha. He also directed Revenge of the Nerds, which I know has got a bit of a cult following, especially in the United States. So stick around for that. Mm-hmm. But don't forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, how about a game of Russian roulette, Mr. Bond? <laughs>